so our message today is called Sympathy for Noah, and this is a, uh, a different look at the story of Noah and a different look at one another as well. Um, many of our Bible stories we think of in terms of what it looks like in the children's books or in the puzzles we put together, in the paintings we hang on our wall. And those are often pleasant, because who would want to hang a picture of you know, Noah's flood with what it probably actually did look like? <laughs> what it actually looked like is the animals were getting on the ark. You got all those animals walking their way onto the ark. It was probably pretty muddy, and the ground was pretty torn up. I mean, the reality of things versus how we sort of picture them in our minds are often two things, two different things. Another perfect example of that is when Jesus was born. If you look at all the pictures of that stable uh, at night, when the night Jesus was born, you know, it's always very clean and very bright and warm looking. It was probably none of those things, and it was probably a fairly scary uh, event for Mary to be going through that basically on her own without much help from Joseph. So we get these ideas of what things were like, and then we start studying the Bible, and we get a better idea for the life and the times and the things that were going on, and it helps us relate better. And today I want to start a conversation that I think is extremely important. July is Mental Health Awareness Month. And mental health is not something you often hear about in sermons. It's not something that you often hear about um, preached much of anywhere in churches. It's starting to become a little bit more uh, prominent, but we need to talk about it more because of the mental health crisis that we really do have in the United States. I mean, just looking around now as sporting events are reopening, just in our sporting events, there's crazy things happening. People running out on courts and fields. And uh, just yesterday, I think another plane was grounded because a guy tried to breach the cockpit. There is a mental health crisis. And thankfully, most of us don't experience those kinds of mental breaks. But everyone is struggling right now. And we need to bring awareness to mental health and take the stigma away from it. In, in our church, in, in churches. And we're going to look at this from a story that's near and dear to us, the story of Noah. And I want to start at the end of his life, at the end of this flood experience. So if you'd like to turn with me to Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 18, uh, we get a, an interesting detail at the end of this story of Noah that lets us in on what I believe is a, is a big clue to what Noah's actual experience during the flood was. So Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. This is what scripture says. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and become drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Noah is the first person in all of Scripture to be named as having a problem with alcohol. 
How about that? But those alcoholics, right? They're, they're sinners. Those alcoholics, they're, you know, they don't follow the Lord, right? This is Noah, friends. How's that sit with you? Noah is the first one ever mentioned to have had a problem with alcohol in all the scriptures. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that it, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Cain, the, the servant of servants. Thanks a lot, Ham. Now his son's cursed because of what Ham did. The servants of servants he shall be to his brothers. And it, it goes on to talk about the, the curse. Now, you might be thinking, well, Noah was embarrassed. Noah was, uh, it, this is Noah's fault. Why is he taking it out on his son Ham? You have to understand a little bit more about what's going on here. Do you see the difference between the way Ham handled this situation and Shem and Japheth handled this situation? You see the difference there? When Shem and Japheth heard that their father was laying uncovered in his tent, they had extreme respect for him. They backed their way into the tent. They refused to look at him. And then they covered him up without even looking at him. What did Ham do? He went in. He was looking for his father first. He was looking for him. He was in his tent, right? It probably was no secret as to what Noah had been doing. And he had disappeared. And he's laying in his tent. So Ham goes looking for Noah. He peeks in the tent. And then he goes and tells his brothers what the condition of their dad was. You see the different spirits that are there? My friends, uh, this is... <laughs> I'm going to preempt the message and give us a warning here right from the get-go. Are you a ham? Or are you a Shem and Japheth? When you see someone who is suffering, when you see someone who has issues, when you see someone who is dealing with alcoholism or mental illness... Do you treat them with the respect that Shem and Japheth did, or do you treat them like Ham did? Do you go and run and tell everybody, do you see what a wreck this person is? Do you see, see what condition they're in? I can't believe this. Or do you treat them with the same kind of respect that Shem and Japheth did? You see, I believe that the way that these boys treated their father was a way, Shem and Japheth treated their father in a way that was respectful because they understood what their father had been through. Now, when we think of the story of Noah, we think, oh, Noah, wonderful experience. He got to spend time with all those animals. And that is another example of us having a rosy picture of history and not really thinking about what that experience must have been like. I believe, my friends, that Noah's issues with alcohol were a mental health problem. I believe that Noah, 
just like many alcoholics that, that live today, was self-medicating depression and anxiety and probably post-traumatic stress disorder. You see, all of us self-medicate. You're all really quiet. You, when you get stressed, do you overeat? That's self-medication. You're self-medicating stress and pain and anxiety and depression. You buy new things and it feels good. Self-medicating. Some people turn to drugs and alcohol. Some people turn to food. Some people turn to sex. Some people turn to all sorts of different things that we indulge in. And the reason is we're trying to heal the pain, ease the stress and anxiety that we all carry in this world. So for, for Shem and Japheth to treat their father with respect was to understand him, was to respect him. And Ham was the kind of person that sees somebody walk in disheveled into church and goes and says, hey, did you see sister so-and-so today? She doesn't look very good. Rather than going to sister so-and-so and saying, hey, how was your week? You doing okay? You see, what we do is we love to judge how other people self-medicate. Because it makes us feel good. And when we call people out about their issues, it makes us feel like, ah, I'm in better standing. That's self-medication too. Christians do it every Sabbath. We look at how people dress. We look at the sin in their lives. We look at the things that they're going through. We judge them, and it makes us feel better about our condition. That's self-medication. Because we have stress and anxiety about our own sins. We have stress and anxiety about our own lives. And the more we judge, and the more we condemn, and the more we call people out, it eases the stress about ourselves. We all self-medicate, all of us. If you're human, you self-medicate. So I want to reinforce this. I want to show you this, and I want us to think about this experience of Noah to, to help you see that this is clearly a, a circumstance of post-traumatic stress disorder, and Noah found that the fruit of that vine, the wine, helped him feel better. He was self-medicating. Well... Let's think about this. Let's, let's look at where the world was in Noah's life at this point. Are you ready? He started off this story, and what was the world like? The, the Bible says that it was increasingly wicked. So much so that all of the thoughts and desires of the heart were what? Evil continually. So that's where this story starts. So he's already living in a a traumatic, painful type of a world. So that's, that's where the story starts. And uh, in this judgmental, evil, sinful, turning its back on God world, God goes to Noah and instructs him to build a boat in his backyard. Now you might be saying, well, you know, put it on a trailer. You don't realize how big the ark was. There's no trailer big enough to put that ark on to pull it to water. Because here's the other thing. To this point, Scripture tells us 
it has never rained. So Noah is building this massive boat in his backyard, nowhere near water, in a wicked world where people increasingly are not following the Lord. How did Noah look to everybody? Crazy! And from that point, he goes and he starts talking about the end of the world. Now, here's the, an interesting thing. When we think of those ancient times, we've been trained to think of ancient times as if they were extremely primitive, people were uneducated and not very intelligent. We've been trained by science to think that way. But if you think about it, this was a, a number of generations just past Adam. Genes were more pure. They were probably far more intelligent than we were. So as far as society goes, in, in their context, they were probably far more developed than we are in our thinking. And in our time, we're thinking, many people are thinking, this world's never going to end. So you have an increasingly wicked world, and the IQs of people who think that they can fix things are even higher than what they are today, and everybody's saying today, oh no, the Bible's not true. Oh no, the... Can you imagine the mindset of people? And Noah is called to be a street preacher in this kind of day and age. So not only is he building the boat, he's also going around warning people that the flood is coming and that destruction's coming upon the world. <laughs> I mean, he probably seemed absolutely crazy. Now, any preacher will tell you that it's hard enough just to preach normal sermons. Because you feel responsible for people to accept what you're preaching. And those are just regular run-of-the-mill gospel sermons. Can you imagine the pressure Noah must have felt? He knows that the world is ending, and these are his friends and his neighbors and kids that play with his kids. Can you imagine that pressure? And nobody is listening. Maybe they would for a while, but then they'd, you know, they they'd go fall back on previous belief, and you know how it goes. And then, and, and by the way, it's about 120 years or so from the time Noah is warned about the end of the world to when the flood actually starts. So he's can you imagine year two? You know, he's warning the world, and people are going, did you hear what Noah's saying about the end of the world? And then we're at a year 50, and he's still saying the same thing, and there's no flood. The pressure, the feelings of failure, and, the, and then the boat's starting to get erected, and people are beginning to see this taking shape, and I can't even imagine and then Noah, shortly before the, 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 uh, the flood begins or the rains begin to fall, Noah is asked to gather species from all the earth. Representatives from each species from all the earth. And one day, animals just start walking on the boat. I mean, I can only imagine what the neighbors are thinking. Now, there is one little interesting uh, note about the flood story. We talked about this last night in Vespers. But in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 2, it says that after the flood, 
the animals became more afraid of humans than they were before. So there is not the same level of fear between the animal kingdom and the human race before the flood. Something changed. We started hunting them for food and things. And so it's interesting. Uh, There must have been a, a slightly different relationship between humans and animals before the flood. So the idea of animals relating to humans and even obeying humans wasn't necessarily a big thing, but many, many, many animals are going on to this ark. And Noah's got the responsibility of putting them all where they need to go. I mean, have you ever ever thought about that? You have thousands of different species, hundreds at least, if not thousands of different species, and you've somehow crafted a stable or a room on the ark for all of them, and you're thinking, okay, tigers, they're on level two, section four, room one. You know, and Noah's wife, you know, would escort them, let me show you to your room, tigers. You know, I mean, just think about that. And, and not only is the future of the human race in your hands, but also the created animals. And you had to make sure that the, the ark was meticulously made and and fashioned in a way that could support life, and life could exist. Now they're on the ark. Now what are the neighbors saying? Blue skies, the sun's out, and they're loading the ark with food, and there's all these animals on there. Can you imagine what the neighbors were saying? Smells. There's crazy no. You got all those animals on that boat up there. Crazy Noah. He's on the ark. Then it starts raining. The doors close. Then it starts raining. And the mocking and the jeering of his friends and neighbors and people around became screaming and knocking on the walls and the doors of the ark. And as the waters are rising, it it changes from pleading to absolute terror and horror. People surrounding that ark, wanting to get on that ark, knowing that Noah was right, and and they know the world is ending. People that he knew, children that his, 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 his children played with, kids that his kids played with and now they're grown and can you imagine what that must have been like knowing you can't open that door after pleading with these people for 120 years now you can't save them it rains for 40 days and those those shrieks of horror are finally silent and you know what's happened. And as the, the quiet sets in, you realize that you, your wife, your sons, and their wives are the only people alive on the face of the earth. Oh, Noah's Ark, what a wonderful children's story, right? But this is the reality of things. This was the human experience, what was going on in the mind and heart of Noah. Oh, the Lord is faithful, right? Yeah, the Lord is faithful, but Noah still had to live through it. 
and he had human emotions, and he had, he was just a man. Friends, the Bible says, do not be afraid, but it also says, I'm with you always. Why would the Bible say, I'm with you always, if we're never supposed to have fear? Don't you think that a human, it's natural to have fear? Here's the thing. In the, in the experience of a human being, it's not a sin to be afraid. It's a sin to allow that fear to overcome a deeper faith, knowing that God will get you through somehow. You see the difference there? Now, I can only imagine that, you know, Peter's in the cell thinking he's going to be beheaded the next day because he's been arrested. I'm sure there was some fear in Peter. But there was a deeper faith, a faith that was deeper than his surface fear. That's the faith of a Christian. The Bible never says that as a human you will never be afraid. It never says that human emotions will be taken away from us. It just says don't let those human emotions supersede what's deeper. We're human after all. Faith supersedes what's on the surface, but it's not a, it's not a sin to be afraid. And I, I imagine these last handful of humans are, are, are afraid. It rains for 40 days. Then another 150 days of flood. You are floating on water that's covering the entire surface of the earth. And it's about, what, I, I, let, me, let me look at my notes here. It's 15 cubits higher than the tallest mountain. A cubit is a, about the measurement from a man's elbow to the tips of his fingers. So it's roughly 18 inches. So the flood water is so deep that it's 15 cubits higher than Mount Everest. Now the ark seems big, but on that scale of water, it probably felt like a life raft, a handcrafted life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You beginning to see this? What this really was like? Yeah, he had faith. Yeah, he trusted in the Lord. But he was also a human being. They're a human being. And so uh, Noah, finally, so how many days was Noah actually on the ark? If you listen to Vespers last night, don't answer this. How many days was Noah and his family actually on the ark? Does anybody know? 371 days. Noah was shut in that ark 371 days. And you all had a hard time with quarantine. And look at the mental health effects that it had on people for the quarantine. We could still go out. You know, you had to go to the store and maybe you ordered food out and things like this. 371 days of being shut up in a stinky boat with his family. That's hard enough. And then animals and caring for them each day. 371 days. And then, you know, as the, as the pictures show us, the ark opens, Noah steps off the ark and he looks around. Oh, it's a beautiful rainbow and everything's green, right? No. 
baloney, not accurate. Patriarchs and Prophets goes at length into this. Read that when you get home. But she says that it's difficult to describe just how much the surface of the earth had changed. Nothing was green. Nothing was growing. She says that before the flood, the earth was beautiful. Precious gems and gold, I mean, there'd be gold veins. Walk, you'd be walking and you'd see a vein of gold. Gold wasn't precious back then because it was everywhere. Precious gems weren't precious back then because they were everywhere. Now all you see on the surface of the, of, of the earth is dirt. Noah, quite literally, was stepping off the ark onto an alien planet. I'm ruining your wonderful childhood memories of the story of Noah's Ark, aren't I? But this is the reality of things. I mean, it would literally be like you being taken to Mars and saying, oh, and somebody says, okay, get off, get off the ship. There you go. And you having no idea what this world is like. It was quite literally like an alien planet. Their diet completely changed. They began to eat animals. They had to till the ground and, and work things differently than they did before. There were probably a lot of dead and decomposing bodies in many places. Ellen White in, in Patriarchs and Prophets talks about a process through which nature began to, to deal with that and with the, 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 the blowing winds and things. But there were likely dead bodies in many places. Now let me ask you this question. Is it any wonder why Noah may have had depression and anxiety? Oh, pastor, but people of faith don't struggle with that, right? Because depression is a spiritual issue, and if you have it, you don't pray enough. If you only spent more time in the Word, you wouldn't have so much anxiety. If those words have ever come out of your mouth, you better repent. Because it is not biblical, it is not true, and it's not a proper understanding of the Word of God. Nowhere, of course, does Bible study help? Yes. Does, I've even heard people tell people with mental illness, if you would just get outside in nature more. That, to me, tells me that you know nothing about mental illness. Because people who are depressed can't get outside. They physically can't get there. And just because we, we don't see it on the outside and see that they're struggling doesn't mean that that illness doesn't exist inside. And... Noah begins to, to till the ground. He begins to, to work things and grow things. And he grows a vineyard. And sadly, he begins to experience the intoxicating effects of wine. And quite probably, Noah begins to realize that those intoxicating effects of wine mask his pain. Mask his anxiety and his stress. Which, frankly, 
are completely understood. Here's the thing. When we have this experience with Noah and his, I always kick this thing. We have this experience with Noah and his sons. God never curses Noah for his alcohol. But God curses Ham and Ham's sons for the way that he treated his struggling father. Now, this is not a commercial for alcohol use. (laughs) This is not a commercial for self-medication by any means. We're not saying that it's okay. I'm just simply saying God knew what Noah had been through. God knows what our soldiers have been through who have been to war. God knows what real people go through in a world that is designed to take us out. And Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it's like. Uh, When you talk about depression, and you think about Bible characters, how about David? You ever read the Psalms? Some of those Psalms are heavy. Because he's depressed. And he doesn't know how to get out of it. He's crying out with all of his heart to the Lord. Lord, deliver me from this darkness. Deliver me from this pit of despair. My enemies have surrounded me. You know, that's one of the the, the clearest signs of of having anxiety and, and problems with stress is you begin to think everybody's out to get you. You haven't you're no longer able to sort through what people say and what they actually mean and and why people do things, and all of a sudden you begin to think that all the darts are turned in toward you. I'm sure that's how David felt. Paul had bouts of depression. You can read it right in his letters. He talks about it. And Jesus did. Jesus was depressed at times. That's why he had to go off alone and unload this burden to the Lord. He experienced that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he's sweating great drops of blood. And if anybody here has ever had a panic attack or an anxiety attack, that's what Jesus was, having, was feeling, only multiplied by 100. Scientists have, and doctors have looked into this condition. It's, act, it's an actual condition where just a handful of people have sweat blood before, and it's actually happened in history. All the others died from it, but it comes from extreme stress. Extreme stress, indescribable stress. That's what happens physically when you are under a a level of stress that's beyond imagination. It killed everybody else. It didn't kill Jesus. The human brain can only take so much. And I have no doubt in my mind that Noah was experiencing PTSD, anxiety, and depression, and he, just like the rest of us, ran to the wrong thing to try and fix it. This was a man of faith, a man the Lord loved, right? God called him a righteous man. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but Noah struggled with stress and anxiety and depression. So my message to to those of you out there today, and I'm going to share something here in just a minute. If you experience depression and anxiety, it does not mean God doesn't love you anymore. 
doesn't mean that you're not a good Christian. It doesn't mean that you're weak in the faith or you're a weak person. It doesn't mean that you're not a good Christian. It means that you're a human. It doesn't mean that you have a lack of faith. It means that you live in a broken world. And everybody reacts to this broken world differently. I have a couple things I want to share from you from my own life. But before I get there, I want to just share some statistics with you. It is estimated that every year 7.7 million people are diagnosed with both a mental disorder and issues with drugs and alcohol. It is one of the most common things for people who struggle with mental illness to turn to drugs and alcohol because they self-medicate. It's natural for us to look for a solution to our struggles, right? The world batters and beats us. And it's not something you can just pray away. Pray it away. Just pray more. Just study more. It's not how it works. You wouldn't say to somebody who has cancer, just pray away the cancer. You wouldn't say to somebody who has other ailments, just pray it away. People say, well, I've tried, and it doesn't go away. It's an illness just like any other illness because this world beats us down. Every 68 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. One out of every six men has been sexually assaulted. One out of every three women. One out of every three women have been sexually assaulted. One out of 10 million people, 10 million people every year are physically abused. Six out of every 1,000 babies born are addicted to opioids through their mother. 41% of marriages end in divorce. And if you don't think that affects your kids, you're choosing to be ignorant for your own sake. This world will suck the life out of us. It'll suck the health out of us. Mental health is a health issue. It's not a spiritual issue. Say that from the back. Mental health is a health issue. It's not a spiritual issue. Mental health is not a spiritual issue. It's a health issue. Is that what I said before? Or did I get that mixed up? Mental health is a health issue. It's not a spiritual issue. Say that to yourself until you believe it. And remember Noah. It's a health issue, not a spiritual issue. It's not a sin issue. It's a Satan issue. He's attacking us and he's trying to take us out. We all self-medicate. We may not all be alcoholics, but we judge other people and look at them over with judgment to make ourselves feel better, more worthy or accepted. We self-medicate. We buy new things in order to displace the feelings of sadness or anxiety. We make comments about the spiritual lives of others or tell them how they should behave in order to convince ourselves that we are okay. We are facing a mental health crisis, and the church with the health message seems to ignore it. How, do you, how does that set with you? 
the church that claims to have the health message seems to ignore a health issue. It happens to pastors too. It happens to a lot of pastors. I'm going to be vulnerable with you today. And I know that after this, there will be somebody who uses this information against me. But I'm going to tell you this stuff because I know there's probably somebody out there that needs help and isn't getting it. And so this is for you. About four years ago, the church I was in was, it was growing. It was getting division-wide attention. We, we added about 170 new people in three years. We're baptizing people. We were, we, were, we were growing. But just because your church is growing doesn't mean that there isn't attack. It started with a stalker. This woman was texting, emailing, and calling me over 50 times a day. And it started with, Pastor, please, can you help me? Pastor, can you help me? I need help. I'm suicidal. Can you help me? Can you help me? And I, I tried. I helped her as much as I could, and I, I realized that it was more than I could handle, so I, I passed her on to somebody that was more equipped to, to deal with her. And then the messages became, Pastor, you're a horrible person. You're not a Christian. You don't care for people. You don't love people. How can you claim to be a pastor and ignore me? She didn't stop there. She knew people throughout the country, and so she gave my phone number to people across the country, and they were calling to advocate for her, not knowing what she'd been doing. She would show up in places where I was, just to show her face and let her see, let me see her, and then she'd leave. She'd sit in the front and the pew in the middle, and during the sermon, she'd get up and walk out just so that she could be seen. As a pastor, every time you open your phone, you see a message, you're a horrible person. And she would use different email addresses. She'd use different phone numbers. You can block emails and phone numbers, but she found ways to get through. Then, at the same time, there was a couple in the church, and to, 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 to half the church, they were like angels. To the other half of the church, they were like evil angels. They were serving and loving to half the church and ministering to people and bringing people into their home. But there was another half of the church where this woman said to another person, she said, I had a dream last night and you died in it and I wish it would come true. She was uh, from a part of the world where they believed in voodoo type things, so she would drive up on the outside of people's homes and crack eggs and do different types of voodoo things outside their homes and they'd come to the pastor and ask the pastor for help. And so we did what we needed to do. We moved to remove this couple from the church to protect our church members. But because church members seem to have opinions, half the church attacked the pastor. 
This pastor doesn't know what he's doing. This pastor can't deal with conflict. This pastor can't do this. This pastor can't do that. This couple got a petition going, and people started signing a petition to have me. The church is growing by 160 people in three years, and half the church, because they didn't ask questions, because they didn't trust the leadership, is trying to have us removed. All, this is all happening at the same time. On top of that, we had a colleague who was completely threatened by the growth of the church, believing that people were, as the, the strength of the church grew, this person believed that people were out to get them and trying to remove them and take their power away. They were wrong. But this person began spreading lies and falsehoods and calling the conference and saying things, and the conference knew of this problem, and they just sat there and they did nothing. I had been tasked by the conference and the church to, when, when I got there, in my interview, they, they said, Pastor, this church, the conference said this, and the church board said this, we need to sell our building and we need to get out of here. We, we need a new place because we've outgrown it. It's old. It's falling apart. When I got there to this church, that's what they said to me. And so we started, as we grew especially, we just outgrew the building by leaps and bounds. And we, so we started talking about selling the building. And as soon as we started selling the building, a large section of the church, you know what they said? This pastor's trying to build, build a mega church. It's all about him. And so as there was this big movement that Pastor Hall is trying to start a mega church, and this is all about him. And I'm thinking, you guys asked me to help you with this when I got here. People accuse me of trying to build my own megachurch. During this time also, we were forced out of the home we were living in. <laughs> uh, the landlord uh, invited us. It's a crazy story. We don't have a lot of time, but I'm going to tell it. So we had, we're living in a house. We rented sight unseen when we moved there. And all of a sudden, about a year in, this lady pulls up. And she sees my son and I out in the front yard playing catch with, with uh, a baseball. And she says, I'm moving to Seattle. And um, I, I, I'm leaving my house. And I'd like to rent my house. It has a pool. The, the rent was going to be cheaper. It was on a quieter, a quieter road. She said, come down and look at my house. I'd like to, to rent it out. And I thought maybe you'd enjoy it. So we went down, looked at the house. We, we, we liked it. And we decided to rent the house. It was less than a year later. It was about eight months in. She said, oh, I'm going to sell the house. Would you like to buy it? Her intention from the beginning was to get us in there so that we would buy the house from her. We weren't in a position to buy a house. We're on one salary, four kids, going to Adventist school. So we had to move. Lord took care of us. He provided a home for us. But in the midst of all of this, we had to move. And my friends, in the midst of all this, I had been having trouble sleeping for weeks. Weeks. There were some nights where I couldn't get to sleep, and there were other nights where I wake up in the middle of the night wide awake, a couple hours after falling asleep. And I just figured it was stress, and I'd deal with it, and I'd you know, figure out what to do. And during this time, I was, play I was praying and playing my guitar and singing praises every day. My relationship with the Lord was strong. I was preaching powerful sermons. The church kept growing. But then in November of 2017, I woke up one night, as I often did, but this time it was different. 
woke up and I couldn't breathe. I've never, I've never shared this publicly, so this is going to be hard. Couldn't breathe. And my mind was racing. Like, not just one thought after another. It was each of these stressful situations, one right after another, at hyper speed. So I was getting sent images of this person who was selling lies and this stalker and this, it was one right after another, nonstop, and I couldn't make it stop. I tried everything. I tried praying. I cried out to the Lord. I, I did everything I could, but it wouldn't stop. My mind broke. It broke. It was too much. It was like my brain was traveling at 200 miles an hour. I tried to stand up and I fell down. I tried to pray and I couldn't. I tried to slow my breathing, but nothing could slow my brain down. There, it was it. I couldn't, my brain was broken. My mind was broken. It, I it couldn't deal with it anymore. I, I literally believed I was going insane. Couldn't control my mind. I was worried I was never going to get it back again. I could not sleep. I could lay and I could close my eyes, but I couldn't fall asleep. And a, a, a doctor, I believe, saved my life. She said, she advocated for me. She said, this guy needs to get some sleep. And they had tried mild things on me, mild medications. And those mild medications couldn't get me to sleep. So she saved my life by giving me a very heavy medication to knock me out. Don't let anybody ever shame you, ever, if you need medication for a mental health problem. Are they ideal? No. But do sometimes we need them? Yes. And there is way too much of that that goes on. Oh, if you'd only eat right, and if you'd only exercise right. Some people are in crisis like I was, and it saved my life. And so it knocked me out, and I slept. And, and I spent almost two weeks just laying on the couch. Kelly says probably closer to three. And my eyes were closed, and the thing that saved me was her hand on my bare skin. Physical touch. I stayed away from the church, what was it, three weeks? Probably three weeks. And I went back way sooner than I needed to, but here's the thing. I felt like I had to, because if I hadn't gone back, you know what the church would have been saying? something wrong with the pastor where is he he's hiding from these conflicts he's hiding from these issues but I went back and I preached and I probably shouldn't have 
But the fact of the matter is, I sought help. I went to a counselor. I used medication. And it got better. And it wasn't a spiritual issue. Now, during that time, I also have to admit, I still thought that I was, I was in the place in my ministry where I thought that I had to fix everything. It was all up to me. And I put intense pressure on myself. Intense pressure on myself. And so, part of that stress and that weight I caused too. You can't control everything. But because I sought counseling, because I was willing to humble myself to actually go, because I I used medication, praise God, just recently I took my last dose. Yeah, God heals. And He uses doctors, and He uses counselors. And he uses medications because this world will take you out. And we need help. We need help to get through it. And there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with you spiritually and you're not a sinner. It's not because you don't have faith. It's because this is a heavy world that will try to take you out. And so I want to leave you with some, some final thoughts. The first one is, don't be a ham. I don't mean playing it up and acting goofy. I mean, realize that we're all dealing with difficult things in our lives. Don't walk into somebody's tent and see their shame. Condemn them and go tell somebody else and use it against them. Don't ever, ever do that. If you see somebody that shows up to church and they look like they're a mess, there's probably a reason. Don't use your words to condemn them and don't use your words to... Everybody's going through something. Which is why you hear me so often and so frequently remind us of this. Don't use your words to judge and condemn and shoot down and refuse to listen. Everybody's dealing with difficult situations. Love people because you don't know how deep the battle is. Maybe even this morning. You don't know what they came through. The third one is get help, get help, and get help. It's not a sign of weakness, it's not a sign that you are a sinner. It's a sign that this world tries to take us out and we need help. Number four, if you wait too long like I did, that's the sign of weakness. (laughs) Let me tell you what I mean. I waited. I knew there was a lot of stress, but I didn't talk to anybody because I thought, oh, I don't need that. I'm strong. Oh, I don't need to... You know, I don't need to go to a counselor. I don't need to go to a therapist because, you know, I'm a good Christian and I can pray it away and I'll deal with it with me and the Lord. That's the sign of weakness. That's the weakness. Your pride. My pride. Get over yourself and go get help. It's not a sign of weakness. 
Every athlete has a coach, right? That coach helps them be the best person they can be. There's nothing wrong with having a mental coach, too. Well, Jesus is my mental coach. Okay. See how that works out for you, like Dr. Phil says, right? How's that working out for you? And the last one is, God wants you to be the best version of you. He's gifted people with special spiritual gifts to help with the mental struggle of this world. And we need to seek them out. That, and it means, yes, treating our brain and our body right, like we know, like the counsel that we've been given. But if it means you need meds for a while, do it. If it means you need to go to for counseling every day for the rest of your life, do it. God wants you to be the best person you can be. And he knows he's gifted us with people who can help us. There's no shame. There's no sin in it. There's nothing wrong with it. And again, I'm completely vulnerable and probably too vulnerable with you. But I share it with you today because, number one, we all go through it. Maybe not to that level. But it's not a sign of spiritual weakness. It's not a sin. It's life. Noah went through it. Paul went through it. David went through it. Jesus went through it. We all need help. The second thing is we need to take the stigma off from it. Talk to somebody if you need to. I'm vulnerable with you, and like I said, somebody will probably go off and eventually, I know how this works. Somebody will probably go off and share this information around at some point. But I don't care about that as long as there's somebody here today that hasn't been getting the help they need who goes and gets it. It can literally save your life. Do it. Do it. I want to make a special appeal for prayer today. I don't normally do this, but if you know someone who is specifically dealing with a mental health issue and you need special prayer for them, would you just stand? Or maybe it's you. So I put that first out maybe for someone else, but maybe it's you. Would you just stand where, right where you are today? And I want to have special prayer for you. Father in heaven, we come before you today as human beings. Lord, yeah, we want to be spiritual giants. We want to be faithful and never fear. But Lord, we're just human. And you have given us this human family to help us in time of need. Lord, we're standing today because we ourselves or someone that we know is struggling with a mental health issue. And today we realize a mental health issue is just like any other health issue. It's not a sin. It's not a sign of weakness. It's because, Lord, we're living in a very difficult world that tries to take us out. But, Lord... Today, we want to get over our stigma 
We want to be strong enough to seek help. We want people that we know that are afflicted with a mental health issue, Lord, to just be able to reach out, to get the help they need, to to find the healing that they need. Lord, if it's medication, help us to feel confident that you don't judge us for using that. If it's for just seeing a counselor for the first time, Lord, give us the courage to get over our pride and our fear. Lord, help this church never, ever, any of us, to judge each other for reaching out for mental health. Or we have counseling services that are attached to our church because we believe this. We want people to reach out. And so, Lord, we ask for healing. We ask for understanding. We ask for hope through depression. Peace through anxiety. Comfort through stress. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us to the right help and lead our friends and family members to the right help just when they need it. Lord, Noah experienced it, Paul experienced it, David experienced it, Jesus experienced it, and so do we. Heal us and get us through this, just like you did them. We thank you in Jesus' name.